0: The National Park System is home to some of the most beautiful land and wildlife you are ever going to see. And they belong to everyone. That's including you. I'm Brad. And I'm Matt. And on our show, Parklandia, we're bringing you on the road with us as we explore the wonders of the Everglades. The petrified forest. Yellowstone. And many more. If you want a refreshing, relatable look at the outdoors, listen to Parklandia on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. You don't have to be an expert camper to enjoy going outside. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Two months before my father died of prostate cancer, I learned about a secret, but i have always sensed that there was something about my family, or even many things, that I didn't know. As a child, when I was left alone in the house, I would search through my mother's file cabinets and my father's study for elaboration, clarification, some proof, of what? I couldn't exactly say.
2: This is Bliss Broyard, reading from her 2008 memoir, One Drop, My Father's Hidden Life, A Story of Race and Family Secrets. When you were a kid, did you snoop through your parents' stuff? I know I did. Most kids snoop, go looking through their parents' things, trying to solve the mystery of these adults who are so central to us and yet are also so fundamentally unknowable. We kind of sense that our parents have private lives outside of being just mom and dad. And we want to find out about those lives. But in families where there are secrets, I mean, big secrets, this snooping is not so innocent. It kind of borders on obsessive. I should know. When I was a kid, whenever my parents would leave the house, I would get to work. I searched through my mother's drawers, my father's nightstand, their cupboards and medicine cabinets. Like Bliss Broyard, if I had been asked what I was looking for, I couldn't have told you. A clue, I guess. A reason why the pieces to my family just didn't add up. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets, Secrets that are kept from us, secrets we keep from others, and secrets we keep from ourselves. Bliss was raised in Southport, Connecticut, a small town on the coast of the Long Island Sound, with her mom, dad, and older brother Todd. I've been to Southport a few times. It's a place that reeks of money so old it doesn't need to show off. Worn oriental rugs and great great grandma's silver service kind of money. Southport is a place that feels orderly and elegant, every detail perfection, as if dreamt up by Martha Stewart, who, come to think of it, lived in the next town over. So I'd love to start with you describing the landscape of your childhood a bit. Sure.
1: Um, well, I grew up, I. Often describe it as this kind of wasp in Connecticut. Um, It was a wealthy, the wealthiest actually county in America at the time that I was growing up in there in the 1970s, Fairfield County, and it was virtually all white. I think I once looked at the census and there was like four or five people of color, African Americans, but nobody in town when I asked at the library knew who those people were. So they were, if they were there at all, they were not known, and kind of respected members of the community. There were Jews and Catholics there, but there was an overriding kind of WASP culture that everyone seemed to aspire to belong to, you know, my family included.
2: The Broyards had a charmed life, at least on the outside. When Bliss was growing up, her father, Anatole, had become famous as a literary critic. If that description sounds like an oxymoron... Famous literary critic? Well, once upon a time, it was a real thing. And Anatole Briard was it. My father was
1: an older dad. He was 40 when he married my mother, although my mother says that she didn't know how old he was because he looked very young. He was kind of secretive about his age. So they met in Greenwich Village, and I think they both really identified with the Greenwich Village of the, the 1950s, early 1960s when they first got married and were living there. They sometimes of self-described bohemians. My father was a writer. Um, he published a few things at that point, particularly a story about the death of his own father that had gotten a lot of attention and had earned him a book deal for a novel that he was forever working on, trying to complete. My mother was a modern dancer. Um she was also an orphan she'd been orphaned tragically uh, her father and then her mother died um, about nine months later in a car accident where my mother had been driving and so she was pretty alone in the world and, and traumatized really from what happened um, and met my father on a subway and after dance class in, in Manhattan and she asked him out and or he asked her out rather um, so they, when they got married and they had my brother, they moved out to Connecticut. You know, My mother says it's because she didn't really know how to raise a family in New York City. Um, she herself had grown up in Westchester. And I think for both of my parents, there was the sense that their marriage and kind of domestic life, through that, they s- sort of saved one another. My mother saved my father from bachelorhood, he would always say. And my father kind of saved my mother from this sort of orphaned world that she had found herself in when she was 20. And they had bought a series of old antique farmhouses in Connecticut and decorated them beautifully. My mother would make homemade mayonnaise and, you know, fresh bread and plant beautiful gardens. And there was a lot about that childhood that was really idyllic. Um, But there was also a lot where they were, living kind of beyond their means and and living on the edge and aspiring to a life that they couldn't quite afford. And it created a lot of stress, certainly, in our household. Um, And confusion, why do we live in this, you know, beautiful, kind of impressive house, but they had trouble paying for what seemed to me like basic necessities sometimes.
2: And and were you aware of that as a child? I mean, some families are, or some parents are pretty good at call it what you will but you know shielding or hiding from their kids that sense of financial uh, instability or things not being as they appear
1: I think I was aware of it um, because I mean there would be fights about money certainly that I overheard but also my parents kept moving and they kept buying new homes and I think they I had the impression that you know, if we could get into a new house that was more beautiful and kind just a fresh start and decorated you know in some other slightly different style than they could be happier it's kind of this chasing after these new settings um, with the hope of of making things calmer and happier so it, there seemed to be like a kind of discontent always with way that life was I mean at the same time we did have you know we had a lot of coziness my father was a real family man and he worked at home um, unlike sort of most men of that generation
2: So Anatole Broyard is a bit of a legend. He's the chief book critic for the New York Times. He dictates his reviews over the phone from home. Around Southport, everyone knows who he is. Bliss describes him this way in her memoir. My father was famous, at least among the people I knew, not only for being a public intellectual with a regular byline in the paper of record, but for being successful at life. At parties at our house, I'd watch the way he moved through people laying his hand on a shoulder, firmly gripping someone's arm, and how they turned to him, their faces lit and expectant, as if he held a fistful of fairy dust over their heads. And he'd offer a word or two, nothing much, but with a subtext that declared, aren't we fantastic, you and me? Isn't this world great?
1: He was also a really charismatic figure. He was very handsome and very graceful, a great athlete, great dancer and kind of a lot of fun. Um, And a really a quite a a dear, a generous friend. He was a friend of his describing. I think this was really true. He was a kind of master at impression management. I mean, he really worked hard um, to make people like him, but it didn't kind of come off as manipulative or inauthentic, at least to my eyes or to his friend's eyes. Um, You know, maybe from afar, somebody would have seen it differently, but he, he was very likable in many ways, and he had a lot of friends, a lot of people who were quite loyal to him.
2: But beneath all this, something else is going on. Even within all the literary fame and country coziness, the Broyards are kind of on their own. There's no extended family around. Sandy is an orphan. And Anatole? Well, he has family, but they seem to have been excommunicated. He has a mother and two sisters living in New York City just a short train ride away, but they never come to visit. Bliss and Todd grow up not knowing them. We're going to pause for a moment for a word from our sponsor. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. We're currently on break, working on season two. And as I review all the stories that have poured forth since this podcast came out— I can't begin to tell you how grateful I am to hear so many stories of bravery and resilience in the face of secrets. It's an important reminder that community is so powerful. To that end, we invite you to tell your secret, your story. You can call 1-888-SECRET-0, that's zero as in a number, and record your story. We won't be able to run all of the stories on the podcast, but we do want to shine a light on as many as we can. The number, again, is one eight 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 secret 0 You can find out more at familysecretspodcast.com, and you can listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. One night, Anatole's temper flares over a bologna sandwich. You heard that right. I'll let Bliss tell
1: it. It was Mother's Day, and um, he had gotten my mother these lovely Tiffany earrings, but the moment that he was trying to present them, she was cooking dinner and kind of didn't turn around quickly enough and he lost his temper abruptly. And then the night was sort of ruined, and um, I went to bed and she woke me up in the middle of the night, like kind of alarmed, because he couldn't find his bologna for his sandwich that he ate nightly. And I, when I went downstairs, he had... Ripped all of the condiments and the, the shelves off the door of the fridge, and so our whole kitchen floor was scattered with, you know, bottles and the mayonnaise. Um, and it was really shocking and seemed quite out of character. I'd never seen my father really lose control like that. And that's when I learned my mother. I said, "What happened? You know, what's wrong with him?" And she said, "Well, you know, his mother died. And I think he feels guilty." And this was the first I'd heard that my grandmother had died, who I'd only met once in my life, you know, when I was six. And uh, I When did she die? And she had died back in September. She'd been di- dead for nine months. Um, but it was never even mentioned or discussed, or if there was a service, I wasn't included. And so that really hit me hard because I just felt that not only was my father, you know, my father lit- had lost his mother, and was presumably grieving over that but I was also so excluded from the whole experience. I didn't have a right to his family in any way. They didn't belong to me. They only belonged to him which was felt very hurtful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it also speaks to that unknowability. Like how is it possible for, you know, you're a kid and your your father has lost his mother and you don't know that.
1: You know, it makes you wonder if you just aren't sensitive or paying attention or self-absorbed. I mean, I was twelve or something, so I'm sure I was self-absorbed. But you know, I thought of myself as close with my father. He was very affectionate and he was he'd waited a long time to have children and he really loved kids. And so he seemed really very interested in my my life and my brother's life and our when our friends came around and he was a very engaged father by today's standards or back then. So the fact that I hadn't noticed that he had lost his own parent and that had perhaps been grieving over that made me feel that I um, didn't know my dad or we weren't as close as I thought.
2: If Bliss's aunts or grandmother were a part of her imagination at all when she was a kid, they were shadowy, mysterious figures hovering on the periphery. I mean, my one aunt would
1: call the house sometimes and she didn't feel as cut off limits to me as my other aunt did. But I, after my father died, I found a note from my grandmother to my father that was really heart-wrenching because something like, you know, I'm turning 72 and I'm not a young woman anymore and I just want to meet my grandchildren for once in my life. And then when I looked at the dates the following week, my father brought my, my grandmother, his mother, out to Connecticut and brought her to lunch at the country club. <laughs> you know, like, just as if to say, like, I'm not keeping you apart and there's nothing wrong going on here and you're welcome to come. But she, of course, she once she came, she, um, that was it. She never came back. It was the only time I ever met her.
2: Bliss and Todd attend great private schools. The family spends summers on Martha's Vineyard. They play tennis hang out at the yacht club, they're close. And yet, Anatole's penchant for control continues to exert itself in all sorts of ways. Because, here's the thing, you can't control life. You can try. You can eat the same bologna sandwich every night. You can perfect your backhand. You can keep your family at bay. But ultimately, no matter how masterful you are at it, life will have its way. Life always does. And let's not forget that Anatole Broyard is, first and foremost, a writer. He's been trying to write a novel forever, and he can't. He just can't.
1: A friend told me a very poignant story that they went and had a, like, a little self-created writing retreat together, and after the first morning, they uh, shared their work over lunch, and this friend said, that's great, Anatole, keep going, and then my dad came down the next day, and it was Basically the same couple of paragraphs, but with a comma changed here and there, and you know. And he said, "Okay, yeah, keep going." And it just went on like that for the week. And finally, at the end of his life, I think when he, you know, when he realized his life actually had a deadline, he was sort of liberated to create both um, some memoir that was, became a book called When Kafka Was the Rage, and also his writing about illness. Um, and he found a way to kind of write about himself honestly.
2: When Bliss is in her early 20s, Anatole is diagnosed with prostate cancer, and just before her 24th birthday, it's clear that he has very little time left. One afternoon, Sandy tells Bliss and Todd, in front of Anatole, that their father has a secret, and she begs him to tell it.
1: So what happened is my father had gone... To couples therapy with my mother um, when he was, it was clear that like Western medicine had done what it could for his illness and she was trying to get him to do some alternative treatments and they were kind of, he was resisting it. So they went to couples therapy and it turned into um, more conversation about how he wanted to finish up his life. And this secret came up and the therapist had suggested that it would be a kind of unburdening to tell his children finally something that my mother had been really after for him to tell us for years. I think in the back of my mother's mind, too, she was going to include his two sisters in his memorial service, and so we were going to meet them, and I was going to meet my cousins. And Wouldn't it be better if my father told us first? So she sort of sprung it on him to tell us, and he wasn't ready, and and he was having a hard day. Um, he was in a lot of pain from his prostate cancer, which had advanced at that point to his bones. And he said that he wanted to get his vulnerabilities in order so they didn't get magnified during the discussion. Very kind of controlled um, thing for him to say, very kind of typical in a way.
2: Imagine how amazing it would be to get your vulnerabilities in order, to line them up like good little soldiers to wait until they're all perfectly aligned, and then, and only then... Oh, wait, right. That's not how vulnerabilities work. Okay, so Bliss and Todd can't imagine what the secret might be. Their father isn't talking. He's ordering his vulnerabilities. He's frail and in ever-worsening shape. Finally, when it seems the end might be near, Sandy decides to tell her children herself
1: he landed back in the hospital with a medical emergency and he had to have emergency surgery and it looked like he was going to die he wasn't going to make it through the surgery and so my mom brought us outside Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston and said look I'm going to tell you what the secret is your father's part black and my brother and I laughed. You know, we we just thought, oh that's it, that's the big secret, because we had been talking, you know, the last couple of weeks. What do you think it what do you think it is? Like did somebody get murdered, just rape, you know, we just thought incest. We knew there was something had to do with this family, but we really went down what we seemed like much darker channels. Um, so this seems like not a very big deal and kind of a relief and we I remember we joked about it.
2: But over time after Anatole's death, the magnitude of the secret and what it really means for bliss starts to slowly reveal itself.
1: But I think then, a few months later at the memorial service, and I met my Aunt Shirley, who I'd never met before, and her son, Frank, and um, saw my other Aunt Lorraine for the first time in, you know, 25, 20 years or something, uh, the secret started to take on more import and I started to really have a lot of questions why was it a secret what did it mean to him what does it mean to me and I told my best friend from growing up from Martha's Vineyard I pointed out my aunts and I said you know, those are my aunts this, the big secret was that my father was black and I didn't know she said you didn't know I knew I said what like you knew all of these years she said yeah I, I, I mean I thought like everybody knew. I knew my parents knew and their friends I just thought that you preferred not to talk about it That was very odd, because I
2: had been sort of um,
1: made complicit in the secret that I wasn't even really aware of.
2: This is something I think a lot about. In any number of the conversations I've had for this podcast, the notion that not only was a secret kept, but that in fact that secret was hiding in plain sight, well, that keeps on coming up again and again, especially when it relates to paternity or ethnic or racial background. I mean, this was definitely true for me. When I first wrote something on Facebook about my discovery about my dad, kind of announcing the subject of my new book, the wife of my ninth-grade English teacher posted a comment. Hashtag always wondered, she said. Really? Always wondered? Had everybody always wondered except for me? In your book, you talk about dancing, right? Right and you're a really good dancer, and you come home one night, and you say to your father, um, it was like the ultimate compliment <laughs> somebody said to you, you know, like, you, you dance like a black girl, yeah. or, you know, like, and, I mean, he doesn't really register it, and you don't really register it. Um, I think he took it as a compliment, too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right, like that, he, he wanted that part, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, I think for me, too, I felt very exposed um, with this idea, this knowledge that a lot of people knew something about me, I didn't know myself you know it makes you feel like you have a sign on your back or something um, and it I made me feel sort of stupid and, uh, and I even had some you know strangers when I was giving readings like how could you not know um, didn't you look at your father and wonder and you know I've talked to people whose parents have come out or um, later in life and I think that Partly, I think it's the self-absorption of the child. Like we, yes, we're trying to figure out our parents, but we're more focused probably in figuring out ourselves, and we don't quite see the connection. You know, Um, but also, I just didn't—I wasn't suspicious that my parents, you know, were keeping a secret. You've sort of been involved with them in a way so intimately, like it seemed um, hard to. It just wasn't one of the things that I wondered about. You
2: know. Well, it's there's almost a kind of implicit pact, or you know, some, something unspoken between parents and children, which is, is that parents are not going to lie to their children yeah. or withhold you know, significant aspects of their identity. But I think it's just about impossible for a child to bring forth any kind of conscious knowledge in that situation. We're going to pause for a moment.
0: Hi. I'm Daniel Scheffler. Join me on my new travel podcast called Everywhere. I've spent the majority of my life circling the globe. I have fed stray dogs in Cairo for a day, been tattooed in the back of a jewelry store in Istanbul, and I've joined a chef to seek out new sources of protein in the Amazon. So I want to tell you how I travel and how you could. Come with me and I'll show you everywhere. Every week, over two seasons, I will take you to different places across the globe, share some magical experiences and stories, and include interviews from travel connoisseurs like the CEO of Starbucks, Kevin Johnson, designer Kelly Worsler, and the director of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Plus, soon to be revealed, iHeart Media Stars. Listen and subscribe to Everywhere at Apple Podcasts, the iHeart Radio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Secrets have other impacts, other effects. They form the inner lives of the people who live and breathe the atmosphere of that secret. In Bliss's father's case, keeping his blackness a secret, by keeping his family of origin at bay, had the unintended consequence of making his daughter feel like she could be rejected too, for reasons she didn't understand."
1: There was always a kind of um fragility in a way to our family and i was like wary of things where somebody might be cast out i think probably because i I knew that my father had rejected his family of origin so that unconditional bonds that you're supposed to exist in families did, did not seem certain for me and there was a kind of you know an an active um, role on my part just to keep my father engaged because he could go off and forget about us like he had forgotten about his, um, his parents and his sisters. Um, so for me, even though I felt quite loved and secure, you know, on one hand, I also understood that we were together because we wanted to be together, not out of, kind of obligation or duty, that family was a construction. Um, and I felt that they needed to sort of continually keep us together, in a way.
2: And another consequence. When a secret does get pushed out into the open, it leaves the inheritors of that secret with a lot of catching up to do. Bliss goes to the library, actually goes to the library, if you can imagine such a thing, and skulks around shamefully, Trying to look up information about passing, as if she were trying to—I don't know—check out some porn.
1: I didn't know anything about the phenomenon of racial passing when I discovered it happening in my own life and family. Um, so I did go <laughs> to the library back then. There was no internet, so I could look it up online. Um, and I did feel—I did feel very um, kind of secretive myself, and like a little ashamed to be partly because it seemed strange to go to a library to look up something that was so intimately involved with your family and your own identity you know i was going to these outside sources they had a card catalog system and i started looking up passing which was what my mother had described my father as doing um, which is a term i wasn't familiar with and uh then it led me down a path to sort of trying to figure out how people's racial identity was even determined. Um, Was there like a law about it? Where did that law reside? And I came upon the term miscegenation, um, which is the marriage or the union between a black person and a white person, um, which was contained in the statutes of many states um, and their marriage laws. You know, no black person or white person could be married together um, that was miscegenation and you know these terms seemed kind of shameful for to me Um, although that's what had happened in my own family I mean my father was very light-skinned clearly it it wasn't all black 100 percent was a lot of racial mixing in his past or miscegenation so I think it was um I mean that was part of why I felt um like I was conducting the search kind of in secret because there was a whole shameful quality to it that he had passed and you know there had been miscegenation and then there was also all these terms these racial terms like octoroon was somebody who was one eighth black mulatto was half um was one sixteenth and i wondered you know which of these definitions <laughs> applied to my father and applied to me and it was just odd to encounter this whole Vocabulary that didn't, had little to do with how I'd been raised in Fairfield, Connecticut, um, you know, that now is applying so directly to my own life.
2: There were many reasons that Anatole Broyard chose to spend his adult life passing as a white man once he moved his family to one of the whitest towns in America. One of those reasons was literary ambition. At the time, even if he had written a masterpiece, he would have been known as a black writer and the novel, a great black novel. Ralph Ellison, who Broyard knew and admired, had published Invisible Man, which was hailed in the pages of the New York Times, Anatole's newspaper, as the greatest Negro novel of its time. Another reason, however misguided, seems to have been his love for his children. He had suffered, as a light-skinned black child, by not quite belonging anywhere. So he made sure that his children belonged at the yacht club, in their private schools, on the tennis courts of Southport. He did his damnedest to inoculate them with the potent combination of his charisma, his literary fame, and the myth of their whiteness. I think my read, anyway, of your father was that it was coming very much out of a desire to protect you and your brother from what he had felt himself.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think he thought, what's the best life I can give my children? You know, it's to be white in Fairfield, Connecticut, in this kind of waspy, um, rural, idyllic community, you know? Um, And I think he believed that in a sense.
2: Do you think that if your mother had not intervened and if he had not become, you know, sort of prematurely, very ill, mortally ill. do you think he ever would have told you?
1: You know, I think he would have, or it would have probably come out. Um, certainly, I think it's harder now to keep a family secret than it used to be because of the interconnectedness of people through social media and ancestry dot com. and so I think it would have come out probably. I think that with secrets, what often happens is that originally somebody keeps a secret to protect people in their lives as you said and 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 maybe the the original impulse is love or protection but then there's the embarrassment of having kept a secret for so long and it kind of infuses that secret and you know elevates it with so much meaning and significance that maybe more significance than the person originally gave it Um, so I think that there would it would have been hard for him to kind of overcome how large it had grown just through the, the fact of it being kept a secret for so long to talk about it. But I, I suspect he would have found a way. Um, and certainly, I don't know, with Obama being elected and race relations changing and my own interest, I mean, although, you know, I sort of thank God in a way that I did find out because I, I would think that I'd be on the same path anyway, but certainly it's changed my own trajectory of who, how I think of myself and I had not learned really about um, American history and African-American history in any kind of an objective or balanced way in my prep school in Connecticut growing up. And so I had to actively really search out um, another narrative of history that feels more accurate to me and fair. And I, you know, I think I would have gotten there on my own, but probably not as quickly.
2: So that in a way that answers my last question to you, which is, are you glad you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, It answered it answered a lot of questions. I think a lot of times when there's a secret in the family, there's just a great relief in knowing that you're not crazy, that you, you're you not imagining things when you feel that this sort of sense that something's being withheld from you. I think just that knowledge um, was a relief for me. And I think that the path that I was on didn't feel authentic for me. And this knowledge has put me on a different path that feels like really that the right groove for my life. I'm interested in social justice. I do a lot of work on integration and racial and economic justice, and that, that feels like the path that I was I was supposed to be on, the one that's more true to my kind of my father's story in a way.
2: I'd like to thank my guest Bliss Broyard for sharing her story with us. Her book is One Drop, A True Story of Family, Race, and Secrets. Family Secrets is an iHeart Media production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer. Andrew Howard and Tristan McNeil are the audio engineers. And Julie Douglas is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at dannywriter. And Facebook at Family Secrets Pod and Twitter at FamSecretsPod. Pod. That's Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit DannyShapiro.com.
0: How did Snoop Dogg beat his murder case? What drove Kirk Cobain to suicide? Was Bob Marley a stone-cold killer? How did Sam Cooke really die? And seriously, how are the dudes in Motley Crue still alive? Hear these stories in Disgraceland, a podcast about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Disgraceland is an adult storytelling podcast that contains strong language and is not for kids. Listen to Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.